0: You know, anytime you're preparing a message, for those of you that have, um, a lot of times you experience all kinds of nerves and anxiety. And um, I was encouraged by a well-known minister um, not too long ago who has been preaching God's Word basically his entire life, probably for about 30 years now. And uh, he said, "You know, when I began ministry, I, I thought the nerves would stop when I would get up and teach, and I still teach today, and I still have butterflies every time I get up and speak and that was reassuring, to say the least, because uh, I was throwing up butterflies and, <laughs> and preparing for the sermon. Um, it's great to be here." Uh, I love being here, especially specifically up here. I love to teach, which is why, unfortunately, I feel like I should start out by being frank with all of you. Um, I've been questioning the leadership of Lion and Lamb for the last couple weeks, and uh, simply because anyone who is crazy enough to let me come up here and teach is in need of some serious and tedious counseling. (laughs) I think, I think that's the case. Now, you all know that, and I know that, but these import- unfortunate leaders apparently, I think, missed the memo. So, if you could, in your grace and benevolence, um, approach them later on and say, listen, we've known this Jonathan character for quite some time now, and uh, unfortunately, and uh, this isn't one of more your brighter ideas, so... Uh, and so forth, and hopefully, they'll listen to you, and we'll be prevented from this madness again. Um, I believe it was probably about a year or so ago that I gave a teaching, and uh, it was it was terrible. It was it was just dreadful, and uh, I felt so bad about it. I was so ashamed afterwards, and. Um, it, was, it was just awful. And uh, I was, however, shocked by the number of people that came up to me afterwards and said, Jonathan, thanks for the teaching. And I was like, are you serious? You didn't hear what I heard. That, that was bad. Really? And then a little bit later on, someone else would come up to me and say, Jonathan, thanks for the teaching. I really appreciated it. And it was uh, I was it was hard for me because I was wrestling with this those two ideas, which one was a terrible teaching, a bad teaching. And on the other hand, I was getting all this this feedback, and I was like, "What's what's going on with this?" And it really was it was a defining, really a defining moment for me at Lion and Lamb Church because it was at that moment that I learned two things: one, the members at Lion and Lamb Church that I've known since. This church began since it started. I've known my entire life. The members at Lion Lamb Church are incredibly kind. And they're incredibly gracious. And number two, I'm never going to be able to trust any of them again for the rest of my life. And it was really a defining moment for me. I still struggle with it this day. It was, yeah, very difficult. But, you know, those things happen when you teach and you have to work through them. Anyway, with that being said, let's go ahead and get our hearts and minds where they should be. And that's the Word of God. If you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. It will be our chief text for this morning. Um, I'll give you a moment just to turn there. I wanted to start in verse 6. But any time I cut a section or a passage off, I always feel like I'm doing it a disservice. I always feel like I'm not getting the real feel of the entire text. And so, we'll actually be starting in verse 1. Guys, this is incredible stuff. Stuff, a lot of us, if you've been a Christian since you were a child, you grew up with, and it was very boring and tedious. And then you grow up, and someone teaches you what it really means, and it gets exciting again. And I hope... That's what uh, we have this morning with Genesis chapter 3. Let's go ahead and begin then and listen to God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said you shall not eat from the tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. This is certainly a defining moment for mankind, isn't it? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel now for those of us that understand the full context of that probably yeah 15 verses we know what a big deal this is and for me personally if i was to say that there is one verse in that entire passage that stands out or is of paramount importance to the understanding of the entire passage i would not argue i would dare not argue any verse but verse 15 because in it perhaps more than any other verse in scripture i believe we see god's plan already coming into fruition we see god's plan already mapped out for us to see I think, personally, that this is in part because of the eternal themes that are running throughout the verse. You can see them for yourselves. And within these themes is the groundwork of the entire Bible. And we'll see why this is the case later on. And I think if we as Christians are to have an appropriate understanding of God's Word, and of God's kingdom, and our place in His kingdom, and our place in Christ... Then we must see the great truths in God's word, how he has worked them, and specifically with an emphasis on that, how he has worked them, how God has worked these great truths to come about. I think if we fail in this, then we fail to see what is really staring at us in the face, what has really been in the text all along that we have never seen before. And you say, Jonathan, what in the world are you talking about? What do you you mean by that? I mean this, that the way in which we interpret our Bibles, the way in which we handle the text, the way in which we grapple with it, that we study it, is of abundantly much more value than I think we realize. To state it again, perhaps more bluntly or specifically, I think it can and should be honestly said, That our dedication, one, and our diligence, two, to the text, to how we interpret it and we handle it, will have a direct impact on our daily lives. Think about that statement for just a second. Our dedication to the text and our diligence to how we study the text, God's word, will undoubtedly have a direct impact on our daily lives. This is huge. This is one of the biggest things of the Christian life, and I'm very convicted by it as I prepare for this. I look at my own Bible study and say, Wow, you're not very dedicated. Wow, you're not very diligent. I think about all the things I miss in my life. I think all those passages that speak to these things. If I would have been thinking about those things, you know, you guys can play all the scenarios. We'll develop this a little bit more. And guys, I think the reason for this is, is that the profound nature, this, this book that we read, this Bible, our guidebook to the Christian life, it's just not the simple book that we can pick up and read. The profound nature of Scripture. Yes, it's, it's, it's profound. It's one of the easiest things for us to understand. It's also one of the most complex things for us to understand. There are passages I've been wrestling with For years and years. And there are ministers. They'll tell you. They know their Bibles much better than we do. And they say, yeah. I keep going back to James 2. We talked about that the other day, didn't we? Um, So we have to be dedicated. We have to be diligent to the text. Um, And we see this in the text too, don't we? Paul himself was concerned about this. When he talked to Timothy... What was one of the pieces of advice he gave Timothy? I believe it's 1 Timothy 2 or 2 Timothy 2. He says, study, study to show yourself approved unto God. Why? So you won't have to be ashamed. You won't have to be ashamed. One of the key pieces of advice that Paul gives his co-laborer and the work of Christ is to be a student. To study God's word. To be dedicated to it. And we can ask ourselves today, are we dedicated to God's word like a good student should be? Are we? Um, when I was... Your mouth gets so dry when you speak. It never happens any, any other time. It's terrible. I'll be bending down and getting that a lot, so be forgiving. Um, When I was a young teen and I knew I was a Christian, I was positive I was a Christian. I, I didn't doubt it. But I had no idea what it meant to be a Christian. I had no idea what it looked like. And I remember as... A young boy, you know, 13 years, years of age. Wondering, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to know God? How can I know God? And in my ignorance, and really my lost state, I opened up my Bible. And I opened up the book of Proverbs. And in chapter 1, what does it talk about? What does it say? It says, for a young man that wants to know wisdom wants to gain understanding, wants to know the words of life, read this book. And I was like, okay. That's me. I can do that. So I kept reading. And what did I get? A little bit further on, not you know, the good stuff is almost always in the middle or at the end, but in Proverbs, a lot of it is at the beginning. And I just keep reading a couple chapters and a little bit further on, you know what I get? I get bind, words like this. Bind truth around your neck. Write it on the tablet of your heart. And when I first thought about that, you know what? Again, I was ignorant. I was lost. I was a 13-year-old boy. Write it on the tablet of your heart. What What does that mean? So I kept reading it and reading it and reading it. And finally, it clicked with me. I have to make God's Word my own. I have to wrestle with it. I have to grapple with it. I have to be dedicated to it. Some of us are very dedicated students, whether it's in high school or college. But are we dedicated to God's word like we were maybe back in our college days? Studying. Not all of us, obviously. Not me, for sure. But studying and studying and studying. Wanting to do your best. Wanting to make the grade. Do we approach our Bibles like that? It's a good question to ask, I think. Um Later on in Proverbs, it also says, seek knowledge and seek for God's word as for hidden treasures. As for hidden treasures. Think about that. Dedication, diligence, seeking through God's word as if it means everything to you. On uh, very rare occasions, I give advice and uh, it's usually a terrible thing. Uh, A lot of bad things happen. People end up running and screaming. There's all kinds of panic. But when I do give advice on rare occasions, I say to devotional Christians who read their Bibles 10, 15 minutes a day, you've got to do more than that. You just have to. What is the man in Psalm 1 described as? A man who's meditating on God's word day and night. It's everything to Him. God is everything to Him. So God's Word should be everything to Him. Right? Doesn't that make sense? It makes a lot of sense to me. You know, we could keep developing this, but uh, there's a lot to cover, so we'll keep going. Remember that the profound nature of Scripture requires the kind of diligence if you want to get out of what God's Word, what it, what's really there, what it says. Are we dedicated in our study of God's Word? I think we're called to be. Paul affirms it to Timothy. It's all throughout Scripture. man of Psalm 1. Think about that as we go through. And think about it daily. I have to remind myself of it all the time. So we talk about the text we talk about genesis 3 and the themes that are in genesis 3 what are those themes well there are several there's the theme of the seed obviously there's the theme of the coming conqueror there's the truth principle that we see satan for the first time battling against man deceiving man the same tricks you see in genesis 315 you've seen these all throughout history God is the great despoiler of things, isn't he? He withholds from us. We don't have good things. Look at all those things he gave you, but he's really sinister behind all of it. Look at that one thing he didn't give you. Look at it. Look at it. How good is God? Is he good? This plays out in our own lives, doesn't it? We've seen this all throughout history. We think God is really sinister when really He is all loving and He is all good. Uh, there are a lot of, sac- uh, not sacrifice, sacrifice is the theme we're going to get into, but there are a lot of themes that I would love to go into today. We won't have time. The theme I will focus on is sacrifice. That's what we'll be going over. And you see it specifically in verse 15, and that is why it is our focus this morning. So, what's important? Why is it important, I guess? Why is it important for us to understand sacrifices? Why are sacrifices so important? They're everywhere in the Old Testament, constantly assuming a level of importance as if we are to understand, as if there's something we're supposed to get from them. God seems to use them time and time again as if there is something we need to take from it, as if God is trying to show us something through the element of sacrifice. And again, this is what we're talking about earlier, isn't it? If there's something God is trying to show us, Then it is our duty, isn't it, to appropriate that, to see it, to develop it within ourselves so we can take it out of the realm of mere existence. And this is what we do so often in our Christian lives. We don't appreciate God's word. We say, it's there. I've read it. Now we'll go get some dinner sort of thing. That's not what we're called to. Again, we're called to grapple with it, to work through it. Why is it important? Why is it in God's word? Why is it repeated time and time again? What is this element of sacrifice? Why is it important for us? If God repeats it, I think we should pay attention. Thinking of the concept of sacrifice. Well, where do we see it first? We see it uh, with Cain and Abel, don't we? First sacrifice an offering of Cain and Abel, and many of you know that story. Cain offers a sacrifice. Abel offers a sacrifice. Thinking of that picture, and if we can ask ourselves as many times as we can, it seems mundane, it seems repetitive, but why is a sacrifice needed? Well, if this is the part where you have a pen, or you don't have a pen, steal the one from the person sitting next to you and write this down sacrifice, if properly understood, was needed because God's holiness could accept nothing less. God's holiness could accept nothing less. And interestingly enough, I think it is this understanding of holiness that helps us properly understand sin. It is this understanding of of holiness that helps us properly understand sin God if he is indeed perfectly holy if he is indeed perfectly just then in no fashion and in no circumstance because can he accept even the smallest of sins even the insignificant ones even something like eating fruit from a tree think about all of the death from the beginning of time until now. All of the sin, all of the war, all of the slaughter, all of the rapes, you can throw anything you want into there. It came from this verse. Now, I won't waste time looking back through it, but she ate and she gave to him and he ate. All of the death we can think of comes back She ate a piece of fruit. He ate a piece of fruit. Why? Because it was disobedience. So it is a proper understanding of holiness that gives us a proper understanding of sin. God cannot accept even the smallest of sins. So what what does this mean? What does this mean for us? How can I relate to this practically? I think this is the biggest thing, guys. Um... I think one of the chief errors that the Christian makes in his life is to trivialize our sin. To trivialize our sin. Built up by some individualistic, personally developed, twisted scale that underscores and trivializes some sins. Some are important, some are not that important. Many of us, what does this look like? Ask ourselves that. Many of us would never admit this. Many of us, I don't think, would ever entertain these kind of thoughts consciously. But we play this tune like a friendly instrument, don't we? We know this. We say things like, of course I don't give my evenings to God. Of course I don't give my free time to God. Most of the time I have to myself, it's... It's for me. We wouldn't say this. Is this what we do? Or we say, I should probably spend more time with my kids. They seem to not know me very well, and I don't seem to know them very well. I, sh- I should probably spend more time with my kids. I say cutting words to my spouse. It's true, on occasion, every once in a while, actually, fairly consistently, we argue. And I say rude things. I say cutting words to my husband or to my wife. And I say cutting words to my children. I lash out at my children. But you know what? It isn't terrible. Is it? It's not terrible. It isn't egregious. And everyone has their struggles. It's true. I do those things. But you know what? They're not that terrible. They're not that serious. They're not egregious in any way. I think such thinking is a mockery to God and it's a mockery to the cross. And specifically, it's a poor understanding of sin. If we have consistent sin in our lives, if we have consistent sin areas in our lives and we start to rationalize, we start to ignore it, or we make excuses for it. Have you heard this one before? Ah, yes. That is my struggle. I struggle with that. I've struggled with it for years. That's something that's very difficult for me. Anyway, what's for dinner? you see what I mean? Sometimes we recognize it and we say, it's not, you know, yeah, it's there, but it's not that big a deal. Because guess what? I do, however, go to church. I even serve at the church. So these areas of my life really are not that big a deal, are they? Are they? Well, this is the story of Cain and Abel, isn't it? Isn't this the story of Cain and Abel? Think about this for a second. Cain offers, and this, this is the picture, guys. We trivialize our sin. We say it's not that big a deal. We can recognize our sin. We see areas of our life and we say, eh, yeah, it's not terrible though. It's not egregious. Cain, what did he do? He offered a sacrifice to God and he offered some pretty good stuff, didn't he? He offered some good stuff. I'm sure it looked great on the outside. Well, what happens? God rejects it. He shows disfavor on Cain. What looks so good to everyone else, God says, uh-uh. I'm not going to accept that. He showed disfavor on Cain. Why? And this is really the crux of all of it, God, guys. God rejects it because He's saying to Cain, I want all of you, I want the best I want I want my, what is most precious to you, what means the most to you. Abel gave what meant the most to him didn 't he, and God shows favor he says, Cain, I want all of you, so what are we doing when we trivialize our sin? are we what kind of sacrifice are we offering to God and guys. I am just completely struck by this. It might not seem significant to you, and it might not seem important to you, and that might be the way I'm relaying it to you, but to me, I am just struck by this time and time again. These kind of stories are all throughout Scripture, right under our noses. I can't think of a clearer example than the rich young ruler. You think about the rich young ruler, that wasn't a passage just for the wealthy by any means. What does the guy do? He comes up to Jesus and he says, Hey, could you tell me some good things I need to do to get into heaven? Because I'd like to get there. And Jesus answers him. He tells him some of the commandments. And the guy says, Hey, I've done that. I've loved my neighbor. I've loved God. I've done all those things. And then what does Jesus say? He nails the thing that is most precious to the guy. He says to him, Okay, you just need one more thing. Just throw out everything you have. And then come and follow me. And what what does the rich young ruler say? What does he say? He doesn't say anything, does he? He walks away sad. He walks away sad. Do you see this theme? Do you see this theme that God is focusing on? You see a sacrifice from Cain. It looks good. God says, no, no. Guess what? It's not good enough because you're withholding from me. You're withholding from me. And then we see it with the rich young ruler. And then I think of another clear example in the life of David. David, a godly man, one of the most godly men that ever lived, one of the most godly kings that ever lived. And what does he do? He sins. And guess what else he does? He covers it up like a lot of us do. He starts making excuses. And guess what? He's, he's really good at it. He covers all his bases. He covers every single point he needs to cover. And I have no idea. I want to be worthy to the text. I want to be honest with the text. So I don't know if David was thinking this. But if he's anything like us, there's a chance he was. He could have been thinking things like, yeah, that was bad. But you know what? I've been seeking God all my life. I've obeyed God for such a long time. Once then, I'm the king. I need, to, I need to keep my image. I need to be a good king from here on out. I'll just, I'll leave that where it was. Yes, I did it, but let's, let's continue on now. I am the king after all. I've got responsibilities. So what does he do? He rationalizes. He excuses. He makes excuses. And he covers his behavior. And it seems like a big thing when we see it in Scripture and we see a man like David. Think about it. In what ways in your life do you do that? What ways do you cover your sin? And here's the crux of all of it, guys. You think about Cain. You think about the rich young ruler. Then you think about David. What happens with David? God comes to him through one of his prophets. And the prophet says to him, David, you are in sin. And what does he have to do? He has to tell him a story because David is so thick-headed to get it through his brain. We're kind of like that. So finally, when God gets through to him, what does David say in Psalm 51? One of my favorite psalms. When he repents and he's brought back to reality and he sees things the way they are, he sees sin the way that it really is, he says, God, you desire truth within the innermost being. You desire truth within the innermost parts. You want all of me, not some of me, Not this area, not that area, not going to church, not serving at the church, but serving everyone I know, giving my life to you. The areas that I don't want to give to you, the ones that are most precious to you. It's that all out abandoned love for God that he wants. This theme is all throughout the Bible. And you think about uh, Ephesians 2, right? Ephesians 2 one of the best commentaries I hope I make this clear (laughs) one of the most uh, significant and helpful commentaries to me on Ephesians 2 was written by Watchman Nee Watchman Nee missionary in China planted all kinds of churches did great work for God his commentary on Ephesians 2 what does Ephesians 2 say Paul says we were created for God you want to know the reason you exist the reason we're here Some of us lack meaning and purpose in our life. The reason you exist is because you're supposed to glorify God in all that you do. And because we're so focused on other things in life, we're bound by sin, temporary things, we don't get excited about glorifying God. And Watchman Nee's comment on that, he says... If the life of a Christian is to be pleasing to God, it must be properly adjusted to Him in all things. In all things. Because if He doesn't, He won't know the appreciation of what it is called for and He will never be able to appreciate it at all. He'll never see a God who wants all of Him unless He gives all of Him to Him. So to make this clear if you have sin areas in your life that you're not giving to God God says the smallest ones they're not trivial because guess what we always have things backward it's sometimes the most seemingly insignificant things that are the most significant to God because we say that's a small sin it's not that important but God says it is because if you hold it and you were created for me how can you live for me If you're saying no to me in these areas. And what are some of the areas we don't give to him? Again, as we mentioned before, we won't spend a lot of time on this. This actually, even though it sounds like it, is not a message on sin. That's not what I'm going for at all. And hopefully as we continue, we'll see what really speaks to all of this. What speaks to our sin and how God's love really comes through for us. But some of the areas we don't give to him. Guys, the biggest one for me, and maybe this is it for you too, my free time. The free time that I have, I want to do things for myself. I like to watch TV. I like to surf the internet. I like to hang out with my friends. All good things. All good things that God gives us. But those are the things that we should be fitting in a schedule that is worked around God's purpose for your life. So we should be, in our free time, the people we were meant to be, dedicated to the text, studying it diligently. Studying it diligently so we can know Christ and then know the purpose and meaning for our lives. We're meant to glorify God. We're meant to pursue Christ in all that we do. Wow, where in the world am I? We're talking about sacrifice, aren't we? Wow. Why was the sacrifice needed? Why is it there? Well, we know it was needed, again, because God... Think of it this way. God cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He cannot turn a blind eye to sin. And if he cannot indeed close his eyes to the nature of sin then he must respond to it. And this is God's wrath. This is God's wrath, his response to sin. And this was sacrifice. This was propitiation, the object of God's wrath, the object of his anger. And we know from Scripture to receive God's wrath. Some of you know Bible stories. Like all of us do, most of us in here are Christians, to receive God's wrath is terrible. And those who do are often described as holding the cup of his wrath, the cup of his wrath, or the cup of his anger. This is in Isaiah 55 and Jeremiah uh, excuse me, Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25. The cup of God's wrath. And guys, again, all of this is seen throughout all of the Old Testament. Offering sacrifices to the Lord. Appeasing the wrath of God. In the days of the patriarchs. In the days of the covenant. And at the temple. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And notice though, a sacrifice wasn't always an offering to God for something specific. A specific sin. Sometimes it was. Or a particular offense. You see sacrifices. If you want a good thorough examination of it. Read Leviticus. You see all the different types of sacrifices. Sometimes it was to simply offer to God. We acknowledge God who He is. God, You are God. We're not. We make this offering to You. It is for all kinds of different things. In the Bible, you can read Leviticus if you want more about it. Sometimes, a good example was Job. No specific sin. He thought of his children who are going out and having a good time. And what does he say? They might be sinning, so I'll offer this sacrifice up to you. God, there's a good chance they're sinning, so I'm going to offer this to you. The parents at Lion and Lamb, they do this on a regular basis for their children. I can tell you right now. So we look... Generally, we look specifically and we acknowledge God for who He is. Because there's sin, we offer up a sacrifice to God. And this, I think, was indeed the nature of the sacrifices, is that they accounted for all kinds of things. But what is one of the stark elements that we see in the Old Testament in regards to Sacrifices. What's one of the stark elements that we see in regards to sacrifices? This is something that stood out to me. It's this. It's that they never end. They never end. They're continual. They never stop. You think just offering an altar to the Lord, I'm sorry I sinned, here it is, Or the days at the temple. They never end. Can you imagine the priests who did this on a regular basis? The priests on behalf of the nation of Israel were just thinking throughout the Bible, priests in general, what they must have been thinking. Another animal. Another animal. Another bull to kill. Another lamb to slaughter. Another goat to sacrifice. Again and again and again. Again. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And they were at that time, they don't see what we can see now, of course. And again, I'll try to be as honest with the text as I can. I don't know if they were thinking this. but I can only imagine they were men like we are today. And I wonder if they were thinking, why are we doing this? They knew why they were doing it, of course. But when it's so repetitive, you know when you get into something time and time again, you're like, why am I doing this? This never ends. And this is a terrible thing to do, to slaughter and to slaughter and to kill. And I can just imagine sacrifice after sacrifice, all of the blood and all of the death, seeing that time and time again. For some of them, people are different. It might have been a normal thing for some of those priests. It's what they did. For some of them, I wonder if they asked that question, will this ever end? And guys, thinking about sacrifices... All of this was building throughout the Old Testament. All of the death, all of the sacrifices, all of the blood, and all of the conflict between God and His people. This is another element that we see in Scripture. Conflict. Conflict and death. And death and suffering and conflict. And God against man and man against God and man against man. Death and suffering and conflict. Think about the people in bondage to Egypt. When will this end? God, when will you come through for us? You are a loving God. Why is so much of what we do characterized by frustration and death? So think about that very thing. All throughout the Old Testament, thousands of years, sacrifices and sacrifices. We ask ourselves the question, what in the world does it mean? Why is it important? Why is the element of sacrifice important? And then comes a man called Jesus of Nazareth who claims to be God Himself. And one of the most climaxing moments, I think, in Scripture is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with a cup. A cup. And can you think of no other verse? No other passages that this is about than Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25. Can you imagine the sheer immensity of the situation? That God Himself. Why were those sacrifices there? Who were they pointing to? Jesus. Why was the sacrifice needed? God's wrath. Who's holding the cup in the garden? Jesus. Does this not blow anyone else's mind that God himself takes on the wrath of God? People wonder about the love of God. They say, is God really loving? Does God really love me? I can tell you, yes, he does. Yes, he does. This is one of the greatest moments in history. This is what defines everything we do. And this is God's plan. And you're probably thinking, Jonathan, are you going to be in Genesis 3.15 at all? Yes. What does Genesis 3.15 say? His heel was bruised. But he crushes the head of the serpent. So we see Jesus, this isn't God saying, you know what, there's so much sin, let's put uh, Jesus in the picture and we'll rescue mankind and we'll be done with it. No, this was God's plan from the very beginning. So what does this help us do when you look at the Bible as a whole? What does it help you do? You see the text and you see the people in bondage to Israel and you're like, God, come on, how long are they going to have to stay there? How long are they going to have to be there? What is this about? And what we do, because, again, we're not, I don't think, and I don't mean this harshly, I, I say this to myself, because we're not dedicated and diligent to the text, we isolate these books of the Old Testament and we read the passages about the people in bondage to Israel and we read about the conflict and the death and then we throw in sacrifices here and there and we read it in our isolated, sporadic, quiet times and we say, what in the world is, you know, God, could you lighten up a little bit? No, you should have a horizontal view of Scripture so that you know your Bible so well, you see, that's why that conflict was there. This was God's plan from the beginning. All of these stories in the Old Testament, they're building up to something. They're building up to Jesus. This was God's plan in Genesis 3.15. That blows my mind to think about. And so when Christians sometimes say, you know what? My life doesn't seem that significant and it doesn't seem that important. This is a Christian saying that. If you're a Christian, you're part of the most significant life possible because you're in a plan that was from the beginning of time. And if you think about Ephesians 1, guys, this blows my mind too. Yes, you accepted the gift of salvation. Yes, you're obedient to Christ in doing that. But guess what? God in His sovereignty, in Ephesians 1, Paul says He chose you before the foundations of the world. You sitting in these seats, in this theater, at Care Paravel School in Topeka, Kansas, were chosen by God before the world was created. Is that not mind-blowing to anyone else? It's mind-blowing to me. And so when you think about And guys, you can think about this too. When your wife goes to the grocery store and she says something incredibly uh, annoying, like, honey, could you come and help me? And you're thinking, oh my goodness, I've got to go to the grocery store. We'll be there for hours. We're going to be there forever. What am I going to do? ESPN comes on at 6 o'clock. I'm going to miss it. I'm not going to get to hear about A-Rod and whatever he's doing. I'm going to miss that. You don't have to think like that, guys. Because your life is so much more significant than that. And it takes sometimes an ignorant, and I mean this in the most lovingly way possible, sometimes it takes an ignorant Christian to devalue the most significant things like this. And it takes an ignorant Christian who says... What's so significant about that? What's so important about that? And usually those kind of Christians are the ones that are focused not on eternity because they're not in their Bibles because they're not in God's Word. They're not focused on eternity. They're focused where? On the here and now. And they've got to go to the grocery store and boy, I'll be there forever and I'll miss... ESPN. And that's going to ruin my evening. Guys, if your wife ever asks you to go to the grocery store and you don't want to go, guess what? You can think about, I do this, you can think about passages like Ephesians 1. And you can have a good time at the grocery store because you know every day counts for eternity. No matter what I'm doing, I might run into someone at the grocery store I can share the gospel with. Or, believe it or not, I might spend time with my wife. And that might be a good thing. Because you know what? The only thing that matters on this life is eternal things. And what is eternal? God's things and people. God's things and people because both are eternal. And spending time with eternal things and eternal people is what we should be focused on. This was God's plan from the very beginning. Can you imagine Christ... When he had the cup of his own wrath in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's unbelievable to me. Jesus Christ would be the one sacrifice to redeem us, to reconcile us to him. What a privilege to be called a Christian, to be part of God's plan. You lead a very significant life. We need to invest in that kind of significance. Hebrews 10:10 10, 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 speaks to this. And in the context of Hebrews 10, it's talking about Jesus and his will to obey the Father. And his will to obey the Father that he was so willing to obey God that he laid down his life for us. He obeyed even though he requested if you remember, is it three times? I'm fuzzy on the details. Would you remove this cup from me?" And he said, "My soul is grieving." He told his disciples, "This is God saying this, my soul is grieving even to the point of death. Even to the point of death." That is amazing to me. So you're thinking about God submitting to the Father, God giving his will to the Father. It says in chapter 10, verse 10, "By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Thinking about sacrifices. The body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That's why sacrifices were in the Bible. That's why it is important. And do we see now why boring words like context and Bible study are meaningful and significant? (sighs) Appeasing the wrath of God in the days of the patriarchs and the days of the covenant. What a wonderful privilege to be called a Christian. What a glorious truth. To be part of an eternal, significant plan where everything you do matters. Everything you do matters because you're investing for eternity. You know, I love the song. Every once in a while I sing songs because I'm sinful and I get depressed. I'm pathetic in a whole bunch of other ways. So I need songs to lift me up. And I need scripture to lift me up. And a lot of times I go to hymns. And I think about words like, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Us sitting here in this insignificant town in an insignificant school at a seemingly insignificant Sunday morning, another Sunday, none of these things, after all, are insignificant. It's because we only think they are. Because are we thinking about here and now? are we thinking about the days to come where Christ is seated at the right hand of God? If you are a Christian today, what a privilege. Some of us need to be reminded of this. I have to tell myself every day, what a privilege to be a Christian. To be chosen by God before the foundations of the world. To name the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior of all humanity. If we really believe that, what a joy And what a privilege. What time is it? 11.43. Okay. A couple more points and we'll end. Guys, it would be great. I would love it if we could just end here. Wouldn't that be great? We're we're Christians. We're good to go. We're going to heaven. We've been redeemed by Christ. We could sing the songs. Go home. I'm probably... Hopefully going to take a nap this afternoon. Have a good Sunday. We could end right here, couldn't we? But, unfortunately, I'm not going to. There are a few more things I want to say. Um, The first is this. Why I'm hesitating so much, because I'm hesitating on whether I should even say it. I know this might be a very small thing, but I know that some of you here this morning might be sitting here and you're wondering, what in the world does a 23-year-old guy have to teach me about God's Word? What in the world does a 23-year-old guy have to teach me about God's Word? And the truth is, (laughs) absolutely nothing. I have nothing to teach you. Think about this for an example. Let's say Lion and Lamb. We want to draw the crowds. We want to get the crowds in. So what do we do? We put out an ad. We put it online. We put it in the newspaper. And we say, uh, at 10.45 a.m., Jonathan Runyon will be giving a sermon on what he knows, what he cares about, and uh, what he has learned in all of the great and dramatic experiences in his life. All of the things he knows come 10.45 a.m. Don't miss it. What would happen? No one would show up. No one would come because they would say, I know Jonathan. He's an ignoramus. I know him. He's a lot like us. Why in the world would we go listen to him? What does he have to say? What does he have to offer us? And guys, I have nothing to offer you. Because if I'm being led by the Holy Spirit, and I hope this helps you think about it, if any of you are thinking about this. If I'm being led by the Holy Spirit and I'm being honest with God's Word, you're not listening to me. You're not listening to me at all. You're listening to God. This is God's Word. This isn't anything I have to offer you. I'll tell you, if people showed up on a Sunday morning like that, I'd tell them to leave because they're stupid. I don't have anything to offer anyone. Anything of value that you hear this morning, anything really valuable, is because it comes from God. Not a fool like me. So as a young guy who gets up here and talks to you about these things, it's not from me. It's from God. Why do we come here on Sunday mornings? Is it to listen to a man? A fool? No. It's because we gather... For God, And this reminds me a lot like 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? God uses fools to shame the wise. He uses the weak to shame the strong. Why? So that he who boasts will boast in the Lord. And that's why we come here on Sunday mornings. So we can boast in God and nothing else. I remember walking into a church. I need to be careful. I'm getting way off topic here. But I remember walking into a church, a big church. And I walked in and there is the church staff. And at the top is the senior pastor. Look at him. Look at his picture. He's smiling. He looks good. He's our man. Right when you walk into the church, who's the first thing you see? The senior pastor. He's the star. He's the man. And then In a triangular fashion, there's all the other pastors right below him. Because they're good too. And they're important. But there's our star. And if for whatever reason he leaves, we'll select another guy to take his place. And he'll be the man. Do we come on Sunday mornings to hear things from men? Foolish men. I hope you understand that when I get up here, I pray and I pray because I have nothing to offer you anything of value comes straight from God's word and only God's word. And as we as a church, as lion and lamb, we should be characterized if we glorify anything, if we exalt anything. It's not about the uniqueness of this church. It's not about the uniqueness of the body. We come here for Jesus and Jesus alone. So when you think about the body of Christ, you think about lion and lamb. Why do we come here? We come here for God and for God alone because it's in God's plan, Genesis 3.15, where we are brought to Him and we are saved. I knew this was going to go long, so let me finish with my last couple points. And I will bring all this together because I know it's been so chaotic and seemingly probably filled with jargon. But we'll finish with these last few things. I think it should be stated here before we go out today that there may be a few Christians or perhaps many Christians who are largely indifferent to the work of the cross. Or they hear about the cross and it either does two things for them. It it did it for me when I was a Christian and it still happens every once in a while. When I think about the cross and I sing about the cross... I either, and this is what I think many Christians sometimes experience, they have a general sense of uneasiness singing about the cross, or it's about some vague, happy moment of their lives when they became a Christian. It's about some vague, happy time when, that's when I was saved. That's when I became a Christian. That's good. Or I sing about the cross and I something about it makes me uneasy. And why is that? Why would it make uneasy? talking about the cross, singing about it, why would it make some Christians uneasy? Because the cross and the work of the cross in no way translates into their daily lives. They cannot sing, they cannot resonate, and they cannot say amen in victory when their lives are so characterized by defeat and sin. How can you sing about the victory of the cross when you say, How great that is on Sunday morning, but when I go home, you know what? I don't feel a whole lot of victory. I don't feel a whole lot of purpose or peace. Why is there so much sin in my life? Or why is at least, why is there at least no joy and victory? I, of course, I, I dare not and I can't offer. All of the answers to the question, all of those questions. But I can tell you what God has laid on my heart. And more importantly, what His Word says. The first is simple. God cannot bless, and this is where it will all tie in, guys, and I hope it makes sense. God cannot bless those who continue to refuse Him. refuse to commit themselves to Him fully. And you think about blessing, you think about joy, peace, victory. God cannot give you that in the fullest if you refuse Him, if you don't offer Him a full sacrifice like Abel. Are there areas of your life that you're not giving to God? Because if we're honest, many Christians, I think of myself, there are areas of our life that we don't give to God. Yeah, we're Christians, but are we being what a Christian should be? Are you prideful? Are you rude? Are you judgmental? By your actions, are you desperately holding on to certain areas of your life because you want them? You want certain areas of your life? I think about the men here in this room. There are many godly men in this church. I think about particularly the young men they could never give up their video games. They could never give up their sports or dedicating themselves to ESPN and all of the fantasy football, basketball leagues, whatever it is. And you say, that's okay. It's, it's such a small area. But yeah, when your life is given to it and you have eternity waiting for you and you think about God and how he views investing your life, It seems like a silly way to spend your time, doesn't it? And for me, personally, I know those things are good things. I love watching television. And I love sports. I love all that stuff. Those things are not inherently sinful. It's when we give ourselves to them. It's when we have to fit God in our schedule of sports and video games, as opposed to fitting sports and video games into our schedule that's defined by God? That's the difference. Are you desperately holding on to certain areas of your life because you want them? That was the rich young ruler. That was Cain. And those stories were written to us. You know, we have uh, many visitors every once in a while at, uh, on a fairly regular basis come into Lion and Lamb Church. We don't know how they get here, but they come and they sit down And I think they leave because they see my face and it discourages me terribly. But we have visitors every once in a while here at Lion and Lamb Church. And I wonder, if you're a visitor here today, are there areas of your life that you've been holding to God and God in His mercy and love has been nudging at your heart for years and maybe decades about things you haven't given to Him? that you haven't sacrificed to Him because you want them? Ask yourself, has God brought me here today for a reason? Just like He was nudging on your heart then, is He doing it right now? Are there areas of your life that you would never want to admit that you haven't given to God because you've been doing it for years and years? It would be such a brave thing to give those seemingly small and insignificant sinful areas of your life to God seemed like such a brave thing. But what a wonderful thing it would be on the other end when you could then see Jesus more fully for who He is. Has God brought you here for a reason? So, what in the world does all of this mean? I talked about way too many things today. Three things out of this message stood out to me in preparation. The first, be a student. Be a student of God's word. The second, be honest with your sin. See your sin for what it really is. That you're called to give yourself entirely to God in all the ways that you know. Again, this isn't nitpicking. This isn't, did I get up at 8.04 when I should have got up at 8.02? No. Yes, you will sin, but are you characterized by giving yourself to God in all the ways that you know? So be a student, be dedicated to God's word, and secondly, be honest with your sin. And the third, rely on the work of the cross. And this is what everything hinges on. This is what it means to be a Christian. Um, I think specifically of the work of the cross, and I think about Christians who... Uh, make this chief mistake, and it's the chief mistake I've made for the longest time. We look at the cross, and the reason we're sometimes uneasy about singing about the cross is not just because there's sin in our lives, but we don't understand what the cross really means. We think the cross is just penal substitution. God took our place. He forgave us of our sins, and we're going to see Him one day. He forgave me and sometimes passed, and that helps me be a good Christian today. No, that isn't the message of Genesis 3.15, is it? It isn't just penal substitution, your forgiveness of your sins, but it's also God's plan to reconcile yourself to Him. To again, like Adam was, be reunited with God Himself, reunited with Christ. This is again Ephesians 2. We were made for God, and now through the cross, We're glorified through Him. And we have fellowship with God. And your identity is in Christ. Why does that matter? Why does that seem like such a big deal? Because if you think about the Christian life, and I think specifically of well-intentioned, committed Christians like myself, who thought, after I'm saved, now I've got to be committed to Christ. Now I've got to commit myself fully to Him. Now I've got to pray as hard as I can, Read my Bible as hard as I can. I've got to do all these things as hard as I can. And I'll, 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 I'll do this. And I'll do that. And the chief misunderstanding is that it's not just justification. When we receive the work of the cross and we jump into commitment, we ignore the admonishment of Romans 6. That how you grow as a Christian How you see Christ fully is not by more commitment, not by going to revivals, not by focusing harder, not by confession and renewal, confession and renewal. The real life of the Christian is almost the whole meaning of the New Testament that Paul says time and time again. It's that if you think about the cross, you should not only think about the forgiveness of sins, but you should think that you're dead to sin. That even though you have hope for the future, you have power for today because you've been reconciled to God. You've been reconciled to Christ. And that's what it means to be identified with Christ, is that you are now bonded with God himself. And so it's not just the forgiveness of sins, it's now I am united to God. Which means when you try to commit, 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 and try harder and try harder, you're trying to conquer the flesh. And the flesh has already been conquered in Christ. We are dead to sin. So one of the chief reasons we sin time and time again is I think we have a lack of faith in the work of the cross. I'm already dead to sin. How much of a difference does it make when I wake up in the morning and I say, I've got to work so hard for victory today. I've got to strive for victory. No, that's not faith. You have victory already. You're already holy by the blood of Jesus. And it has made you holy. That is your identity in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Um, John White, in his book, The Fight, some of us have heard of it because some of your young adults are going through it. He said, it took 25 years in ministry, in evangelism, and commitment to Christ to understand what justification really means. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, said, if you think you understand justification, think again. And I listened to a minister two weeks ago who said, I was preaching for 10 years before I really understood what it meant to be justified by Christ. So when you think about the cross, it is not just forgiveness of sins. If you want to grow as a Christian, it's that you're already holy. It's not that you're not committed. You're not committed to Christ and you shouldn't be obedient. Yes, you should. But where obedience and commitment is, faith should abound all the more. Because it is faith that we live by. and It is only through faith and reconciling ourselves dead to sin through the cross that we can grow as Christians. So from now on, it would be a great idea when you start your day to say, God, sin is already conquered in my life, and it is now through faith in you that I grow and I become a Christian. What a wonderful thing to name the name of Christ. So be a student. Be honest with your sin. And then understand that the cross, it not only gives you hope for the future, but it gives you victory for this very day. You're dead to sin. And that's why Paul says in First Thessalonians, I believe, when he says, think on heavenly things, was that just some sentimental, think about heavenly things? No, he says, think on heavenly things where Christ is. Where Christ is. So you're united with Christ. In closing, a couple lines from a hymn I've been humming and singing to myself all week. Last few weeks, Actually. I love it. It's incredible. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I will not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground, is sinking sand. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us this morning as you give us all days. And uh, I just think about there are many of us here today that uh, may be broken by their sin and may be broken by areas of their lives that they have not given to you. For it is only by giving ourselves to you fully that we understand what obedience is that true obedience in your economy is full obedience. So I pray that we would, with a renewed vigor, be students of your word, be honest with our sin, and have victory and know what it means to claim the work of the cross. It is only for your glory that we are here today, and it is only for your work that we can say, Amen, Jesus, you have given us the victory. In your name we pray. Amen.